Welcome to Tea with the Changemakers. This week, I'm talking to Jack Monroe. Now, Jack's often referred to by the media as the anti-poverty campaigner and food writer who's shot to fame by teaching us all how to make the most of our pennies and get creative in the kitchen with very little money in our pocket. So, Jack, would you say this is a fair description? And is this how you would like people to describe you? Um, it's strange, actually, because I've got... Um... I've got to a point where when people ask me what I do for a living, I kind of, I always kind of hesitate because I'm like, there are so many different answers to that question <laughs> that I never quite know which one to pick. So that does fit anti-poverty campaigner and, you know, food writer um, who shot to fame by teaching people how to make the most of their pennies. But it wasn't really teaching people how to make the most of their pennies because that's not what I was doing. I was simply describing what I was doing there was never any kind of you know how the whole TikTok generation is look what you can do if you do what I do Mm -hmm. mine was just this is what I'm doing there was no initially no teaching element behind it there was no it's gonna sound really strange but there was no real thought for turning it into anything other than just documenting what I was doing to survive Mm. And you say that description misses out quite a lot. So let's talk about that then, because you've been on this incredible journey over the past decade. So if we go back to the beginning, you first started to talk about food poverty on a blog that you started. And this is what led you to become this powerful voice on poverty today. Now, quite a while back, you were living in what was described at the time as what you described it as, as dire poverty, cooking meals for you and your son for just 10 pounds a week and eventually your blog where you described this situation went viral and it really resonated with a lot of people um so in your words what happened next after your blog did go viral well i mean i just carried on writing it the thing is um you know 10 years ago my blog went viral i was invited on to like bbc breakfast to talk about my blog um i didn't get paid for that they paid for like my travel and for me to stay up in Media City the night before in, in a holiday inn. Um, and they paid for me to go home again. So that whole overnight success thing, I went back home after being on BBC Breakfast and nothing had changed. I was still mm-hmm. living in, you know, a, an unheated flat with nothing in the fridge, nothing in the cupboards. I just had 15 minutes on the television. Um, and things happened things happened quickly but very slowly if that makes sense Mm. um I was a couple of months later I was interviewed um for the Telegraph and the food editor's Anthony Clay came around mine for lunch and that was again I was still living in my cold flat cooking from like food bank parcels and cans of beans and stuff like that and um Xanthi wrote this full page article, my 49p lunch with a girl called Jack. And a few months after that, I got offered a book deal by Penguin. But in so when you put it all together, it's, my blog went viral. I was on the telly. The Telegraph profiled me. Um, a guy got in touch wanting to be my agent. And then I took my took like, like printouts from my blog to some London book fair or one of the book fairs. Um, to hustled it around to a load of editors and um, and Penguin offered me a book deal. And that sounds like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Like went from food banks to 
you know, be, being an author. But actually, it was like that was like a year long process. Mm. And in between that, the, that year long process was 365 days and nights of still not having a job, still being, you know, poor, still not having enough to feed myself and my son. Mm. Even after I signed my book deal, the way the publishing works, um, I didn't get that money straight away. So I had to write and edit all these recipes um, without a computer and without really the money to buy ingredients. So a girl called Jack will always remain the most real cookbook that I've ever written um, because I was literally writing it from food bank boxes and the odd £10 a week and typing it up on my mobile phone and sending those recipes off to my publisher. Mm. A Girl Called Jack, that was your first book featuring a hundred simple budget and basic recipes and it was described by Good Housekeeping as cheap as chips but much healthier. But for me it was more than a cookbook, it was a documentary and a necessary book for people with little or no income. And at the time the language that was used was austerity but today we talk about the cost of living crisis and you know what that tells me is that Poverty is still prevalent, whether we're talking about austerity or the cost of living crisis. And it's just that the language has changed. Because if we take food banks as an example, they've been around a really long time, but it's only in the last three to four years that people have become aware of their existence. And as you've said, you were using food banks over a decade ago, which inspired the content of this first book. Yeah, the cost of living crisis isn't new. It's it's something that has been you know, slowly building up over the last 10 to 12 years. Um, And it's been basically the decimation of public services and all social care and support. And that's from things like refuges to social services to early years learning, short start centres, the NHS, everything, education, um, primary and secondary school budgets, the whole lot being stripped down to basically nothing by three consecutive Conservative governments. Um, so when people now find themselves in crisis, or they find that, you know, inflation's outstripping the, their wage increases or that they need a little bit of help, that help is no longer available for them. Um, and the reason why I think the media have noticed and given it this little tag, the cost of living crisis, is because it's finally affecting them and people they know and people in their own circles. Whereas before, it was just, you know, it's just the pesky pause who were having a bit of a bad time of it, and oh, never mind about those. And now it's, you know, we saw in coronavirus in, in one of the lockdowns where there was this little slew of newspaper articles where um, a woman in a £2 million Chelsea townhouse was having to get food bank parcels. And um and and shock horror that was so terrible because that wasn't supposed to happen to people like her. Now obviously that was a terrible situation for her to be, and I'm not mocking her or her situation at all. But the difference in the way that the media reported mm. around people who were, you know, not supposed to be in difficulty finding themselves in difficulty, you know, the difference in the sympathies and the tone used and the and the levels of shock and the and even the column inches that were given to it mm. were, uh, sort of said a lot about 
how there's still this underlying subtle, not subtle actually, nuance in the media reporting between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Mm, that's interesting what you say there about the language and the rhetoric used in the media. But, you know, this has been going on for decades, hasn't it? I remember reading something you wrote in 2010 talking about the negative discourse around refugees, which hasn't changed, has it? Um, and single mothers in particular. Um is there an underbelly of negative discourse around minorities in our media? And and do you think this is quite toxic? Yeah. And every now and again, that underbelly rolls over and shows itself and everyone's like, oh, that's a bit much. Mm-hmm. And then they all just carry on about their day. Like no one mm-hmm. does anything about it. Mm. So as you said, many people have been living in poverty for some time. They've been getting by for more than a decade on a very low income. The government has done little or nothing to stop it escalating. And our media just haven't cared to shine a spotlight on it until now. But today, more people are being pushed into poverty, largely due to inflation. Do you think food inflation in particular disproportionately affects those with low or no income? And how would you describe to people who are feeling the pinch but are not considered to be on a low income what it actually feels like to have little or no money in their pocket to buy the basics like bread and milk? Yeah, food inflation definitely um, definitely impacts people who have the least more um, because more of the, if people who have like lower incomes, the, a greater percentage of their income is spent on some is spent on food, is spent on the food budget. So, for example, say your food budget is twenty percent of your total income. Um, whereas if you're on a much, much higher income, your food budget might be like, you know, 2% of your total income. Um, and if, if the food prices change, the people who are on lower incomes, it takes up a greater proportion of their income. Now, the, a lot of people right now are on, you know, are on an absolute knife edge of making ends meet. And there's no room in that budget for for anything to change really so when something that is non-discretionary well essential you know absolutely vital for survival goes up and that's things like the cost of the roof over your head so rent mortgage or whatever your arrangements are um energy so lighting heating you know functioning and food or like and water they're like they're the main things that actually if 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 you don't have those you're probably living a pretty miserable life um and if the price of those any of those changes it's going to impact something else in that group so Mm. you can go all foods more expensive now do i skip my rent or, or foods, energy prices have shot through the roof. It's all right. I just won't eat for three days out of seven in a week. It's like those are the decisions that people are having to make all over the country at the moment. And um, and it's, I know everyone's being affected by the cost of living crisis and by the by food inflation and by the absolute price gouging of the energy companies. But for you know millions of people and it were literally millions of people it's just a life or death situation and um and i can't express that strongly enough like that's not an exaggeration this is a this is a survival situation but people with severe disabilities who require 
you know, electrical equipment to keep themselves alive, like dialysis equipment and mm. and other other things that need to be plugged in and running. That equipment now costs six times as much to run as it did three years ago. Mm. And people on, you know, DLA and PIP and other other disability benefits, they're not getting six times as much money as they were getting three years ago in order to run those things. Mm-hmm. So, and those are the those are the things that aren't really talked about and aren't really taken into account. Is well, what happens if people can't run life saving equipment for themselves or other members of their family? They'll die. Mm-hmm. That's what happens. Mm. The government are loudly and proudly saying that they're giving grants and support to people on low incomes or people with a disability to help them fuel their homes. And of course, almost all of us are getting some kind of allowance. But is this enough? Is this the solution or is this really just a sticking plaster? I mean, any any help that the government are going to give is help you know it's it's but it's kind of like you know giving a sticking plaster to somebody whose legs fallen off they've walked into a with their leg in their hand and the government's given them a box of band-aids and gone oh stick it back on with those and someone will be along to see you if you don't die and yes it will help to some degree but that one once that one-off fund runs out people are back to square one they're back in the same situation so all it's doing is delaying the inevitable sort of terror really Mm. but what people need is they need like a long-term and sustainable increase in things like wages in in benefits in in you know in that long-term income rather than a quick cash bump so that everyone shuts up and goes away for a bit and then uh and then we'll and then leave them to it it's Mm. like it's kind of like pulling someone a bit of the way out of the water when they're drowning and then going, oh, well, we've tugged you 10% of the way, surely you can swim the rest. It's like, no, you've got people are, People need sort of long-term, sustainable, secure incomes that will match the cost of living. And when the government can literally hand out millions upon millions upon millions of pounds to their mates' companies for dodgy non-existent PPE during COVID. It's not a case of not having the money to help people. It's the case of who they decide to give it to, who they decide to help. Mm. And that's brought me on nicely, actually, onto the question I was going to ask you, which is what do you think politicians and the government need to do in this country to alleviate poverty? They could sort this out. They could they could raise people's benefits. They could um, you know, put pressure on companies to raise wages. They could, they could do an awful lot of things, and uh, and they're just not doing them. Mm, they're not, but you are, aren't you? I mean, you're doing a lot of work by dialing up the pressure on governments and corporates. Um, I mean, recently you got supermarket chain ASDA to commit to making their cheapest food ranges, including their Smart Price and Farm Store range available in all of their stores so that it's available to more people you know they said they listened to your comments and they've made this happen that's a huge win isn't it um you know well done that's something you should be proud of but what more do you think needs to be done in your opinion um you know more than what you're doing and what more can others do well you know it's funny you should ask because 10 years ago i was asked to parliament to speak 
on my experiences in poverty. And um, I was asked by Frank Field and I went along and I spoke at a um, panel event. I was terrified. It was very weird walking into Parliament for the first time um, because it's so grandiose and Mm. ornate and and intimidating as a building. Um, And I went in and I I talked and, um, and at the end, the assembled politicians asked me, well, what should, what can we do? And I was like, oh, I'm very glad you asked because I actually have a list of answers to that question. And I gave them 15 recommendations of things that they could go away and work on, campaign on, throw their weight behind that would make a real difference to people living in poverty. And um, among them were things like change the way the housing benefits paid. So it's paid monthly instead of four weekly because if it's paid four weekly, people's rents paid monthly, people are always going to be slightly short on their rent payments. So they'll be borrowing it from other payments. So blah, 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 you know, it just causes this little delay, which is difficult, um, you know, for everybody. Um, it was increased the amount that healthy start vouchers are. It raised wages um, to a real living wage rather than, just you know whatever the least corporations can get away with is and uh, and it was this whole list of recommendations and um and i found it the other day uh, i'm in, in the middle of moving house at the moment and i'm going through every single thing every single piece of paper that i own to go do i keep this do i bin it if i keep it do i need it where does it go um kind of thing and i found it i sat down and i read it and i understand only two of the 15 recommendations you put forward all those years ago have been implemented. And the irony is I've probably given 40, 40 speeches in Parliament since. I've given that list every single time and it's just gone, oh, good Lord, it's taken 10 years to get two things ticked off that list. And then sometimes it irks me. Like I hear other politicians, I hear politicians like suddenly parrot something off the list, like it's a, a, a brand new and brilliant idea. And I sit, I sit with it and I go, does this irritate me? No, I'm just glad. Maybe they'll listen to you. Maybe maybe you'll get it done. Like, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just happy that, you know, other people are talking about it. Well, hopefully one day we'll have the whole list ticked off. And I was actually going to ask you about a report that came out a couple of weeks ago, which I found shocking. Um, and it said that there were more food banks in the UK now than there are branches of McDonald's. I mean, that's shocking, isn't it? Yeah, that's been the case for about two years now. Um, yeah, that is true. That is absolutely, and it is absolutely shocking. And uh, it always gets me when someone on Twitter will say, oh, well, I don't have a food bank in my area. Someone being sanctimonious like about donating to them or something, and they say, oh, well, I don't have one in my area. And I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> I can tell you, yes, you do. Everyone does. There yeah. is not an area of the country now that does not have a food bank in it. <laughs> But also it's 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 become so accepted, so like woven into the fabric of the welfare state of our society now that people aren't shocked by it anymore and that's where the danger lies. Mm. Do you think people are just showing or feeling no interest, enthusiasm or concern so they're really apathetic about poverty today? I think people are overwhelmed, to be honest. I think mm. it's too I think it's too big now. It's too big to comprehend. It's too big to resolve. It's too big to, you know, 
it's going to take a dramatic government intervention and it seems as though they have no appetite for it. Mm. So even the people on the ground, the volunteers, the food bank coordinators, all of that, all of those running around trying to patch up all of these like wounds in people's budgets and in people's lives. Mm. And you're on the front line as well because, you know, you may be writing uh, great books, but you do also take some time to volunteer in a food bank as well. So you are seeing this firsthand, aren't you? I volunteer in a couple of food banks. I've never publicised which ones because I, d- I just want to, you know, go and do what I do and come home again. And I and I switch them up every few months as well, just so that, you know, it keeps the people who are there on the receiving end, it keeps them safe from intrusion and journalists and, and all of that. But there's sort of an incredible, increasing level of exhaustion Mm. and fatigue and oh god is anything ever going to get any better kind of among everyone really that I come across Mm. hope is so important isn't it we all need hope in our lives but do you find that hope is waning now and there's really a lot of you know, negativity around this issue, less positivity out there around how to solve this issue. I'm not seeing very much of it, and not even from mm. me. And I used to be the Duracell bunny of anti-positivity campaigning. <laughs> I used to think that, you know, that maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this campaign, <laughs> maybe this time, maybe this time they've got to listen. It's so convincing. It's so powerful. It's so, you know, this is the bit that's going to change the world. And now I'm just like, Oh God, what now? <laughs> <laughs> it's, and it's oh. terrible because it's like even oh. I am, am just going. Oh, maybe nothing will ever change. Like I know you can't think like that because it's not about changing the entire world. It's not about you know having some mystical, brilliant idea that everybody suddenly goes. Oh, we must implement this and, and making everybody's lives better overnight. It's not. That's not going to happen. You know, you can't, it's not down to one person to change the whole world, but Mm. it's about having an impact on the bits of your world that rub up against the bits of other people's, I think, Mm. and that that impact being a net positive good. Mm. So it's, it's very easy to feel like distraught, actually, and fatigued and overwhelmed by the scale of the job that there is to do. Um, with regards to hunger relief and poverty in the UK. Actually, every tin that you put into the food bank box or every donut text donation you make or, you know, every hour of your time you spend volunteering is goes straight to the people on the sharp end who need it. Mm. So you might think, oh, well, it's just a couple of tins, but actually those couple of tins will join up with a couple of packets that someone else has donated and a couple of other bits and pieces and make a box that goes into a household that would have been at risk of starvation if Mm. not for your couple of tins. So it's kind of, it does feel a bit like a drop in the ocean or a snowflake in an avalanche sometimes, but actually you need every single drop to make that ocean. You need every single snowflake to make that avalanche. 
So although none of us are doing the big, wild, amazing wage changes and better living conditions and, you know, and can bibbidi-bobbidi-boo that stuff out of thin air as much as we all want to, um, it's, after 10 years of it, it seems that it's going to take a little bit more than a, a beseeching letter to Parliament in order to get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, although we can't, you know, we can't do the big stuff overnight. All the little things that we do, do do have an impact. And I tell you now, if people stopped doing those little things, if everybody suddenly went, oh, well, my contribution doesn't mean anything, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. Uh, the food banks would close their doors and people would die. Yeah. And so it's those collective small actions that create this big impact. And it is society that is holding everyone up, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is sort of a subterranean anarchist welfare state at the moment. It's sort of an underground network of 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 volunteers and communities who are going, oh, well, what's it's sort of like the safety net below the safety net because um, the government welfare state safety net is just so full of holes. It's mm. almost like the second safety net underneath now to catch people who are falling through it. Mm. It's wonderful that people are helping people in their communities. It is so positive and I guess that's where the hope lies. I mean, without the donations, the spare cash, the time people are giving, people would die. <laughs> that's what you said and and... I just get frustrated and distraught that we're just not seeing that large scale change that is needed. You know, no one should be living in poverty in this country, not in 2023. It's just outrageous. But, you know, the thing that keeps me going, as you said, is seeing what people can do for other people in their communities and what communities are doing to help alleviate some of this pressure at this time. Um, But obviously you've been doing this for 10 years now and I can completely understand why you feel fatigued and often frustrated when you don't see the change happening. And on a personal level, being the voice of anti-poverty, it hasn't been easy for you, has it? I mean, I've read that you've been stalked. Strangers have appeared outside your son's school. Maps of where you live have appeared on social media and people just showing up at your door. Um, And just the scale of trolling that's happened to you. How on earth have you been able to cope and carry on with all that hate out there? You're just trying to do a good thing here. Um, Yeah, there are some, there there have been some very serious incidents over the years and there are some very serious incidents underway at the moment with regards to my personal safety. Um, Yeah, one of the reasons I'm moving house is because somebody put this post of maps all over social media detailing where I live. Um, and uh, that's not very cool to be on the end of. Um, and yeah, there's been some quite horrendous um, trolling and stalking and harassment over the last few years. Um, and uh, it's horrendous actually to be on the mm. end of. It's uh, I know on Twitter I give the impression that I'm a, you know, back-chatting, bullshit, confident, slightly rude, um, that I've got a clap back for every occasion and that I'm bold as brass. But actually, I'm not. I'm quite a, I'm quite shy in real life. Um, very quiet. Um, probably usually the quietest person at parties, usually hiding in the kitchen making cups of tea. Um <laughs> And uh, I get very, I get very nervous about leaving my house at the moment on my own. 
Um, if I'm going to any public events, I take um back up with me. Um, sometimes they're just a human being who can throw a punch and looks terrifying. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's uh, it's not an easy way to live, and it's also not. I'm not being paranoid about it either. Um, I've had unsolicited welfare checks from the police who've come around and said like they've got departments that monitor social media of people in the public eye and um and they've sort of when the threat level against me has escalated to a certain point they've popped around and gone just to let you know we're here and is there anything you want to talk about and would you like a panic button installed and do you have cctv around your house and stuff that's i mean that's that's an interesting conversation to have on a bloody weekday afternoon with two bobbies that have just appeared on your doorstep but you know it's it's what it is it shouldn't be how it is it's horrendous honestly that is horrendous you haven't asked for any of this what do you think is driving the hate because it's just unbelievable to hear what you've been going through and how you've tried to deal with this theories but but you know at the end of the day i go well if i allow myself to get pulled into it too hard um i would i i end up suicidal so i can't read it all and think about it all it's it's people who are clearly not very well and not very happy with their lot in life Mm -hmm. and i'm projecting that that outwards and i know that and i know that on a on a level of somebody who's had an awful lot of therapy i can go right this is somebody who's in a bit of a difficult place in, uh, in their own lives and they're projecting that onto what they perceive me to be etc etc but on a human level um it kills me Mm. it's absolutely like look all i want to do is write cheap recipes that's it that's what i want to do write some cheap recipes can for better living conditions for people Mm. but when i've got to do things like arrange bodyguards for talks and turn down work because i can't sort out security or you know, or turn down work because I don't want the organisations to be being besieged with abuse on Twitter. And I just go, then it's taking away the time that I could be spending doing good things. And instead, Mm. the majority of my time at the moment is spent firefighting. And that's the point. The distraction and disruption is the point. So then they can say, look, see, she doesn't do anything. Mm. And it's a lot, it's, it's a lot to live with and it's a lot to deal with and I haven't quite worked out how best to proceed with it at the moment mm-hmm. um and so it's just one day at a time okay the, the things they say about me aren't true and I know that because I of all people should know whether they're true or not <laughs> you know it's yeah. my life <laughs> I've lived it um and uh it's sad when other people believe the things they say about me um but I can't you know I can't I can't let it distract me too much from what I should be doing you're a campaigner and you're trying to make things better for other people so you shouldn't expect to have to put up with this you're trying to create some positive change here so is there anything that you would change about what you've done over the last 10 years everything has led me to here really there's nothing I would I don't think there's anything I would change. So what advice would you give to someone that wants to take a stand against something as you yourself did? What's that advice? I'd say just do it. Mm. You need as many voices and as many diverse voices. 
in the campaigning space as as possible. And if you don't see anybody who looks like you talking about the issues that that affect people like you, um, be the change. Mm. You know, that's what that's why I did it. I couldn't see anybody who looks like me or sounds like me or had my experience speaking for people like me. So I spoke about it. Mm. You know, and that's that's all you can do. So despite going to hell and back, and that's what it sounds like, you know, your advice still is to go and do it, to be the change. Um, that's fantastic to hear. And we're really thankful for you doing what you've done over the last 10 years and putting a spotlight on on poverty. Now, onto a more positive note, you've got a new book out and this is your seventh book, I believe. So tell us about that new book um, and how it's going to help people through the cost of living crisis. Oh, it's called Thrifty Kitchen and I love it. And um, it's, do you know what? It was, it's, it's as close to a girl called Jack as any of my other books have been. Um, it's, it's, it's got 120 recipes in it and they're all super easy and super cheap to create. Um, and the, and it's also got loads of different like household hints and tips and hacks and ideas in there as well um, and things you know to ha- to basically help people to reduce their food and household budgets in in what is a, a difficult time. Uh, most retailers have got it retailing at half price at the moment, so it's around tenner. Mm. Um, and that's you know, and it's it's lovely. It's a beautiful book as well. The photos in it are gorgeous. And but again, like from my other cookbooks, they're not difficult to replicate. They're not like if you cooked a recipe from that book and sent me a picture of it, I would know exactly which one it was because it would probably look like the picture. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's, it's some cookbooks you like you know you you cook the recipe and what you've made looks nothing like what you know what's been artfully styled and whatever in in their photograph um and that's no shade on that either because I'd love to be able to do all that really artsy stuff it's just not my it's just I just do dinner really (laughs) that's it (laughs) dinner for the kids um but yeah it's a really lovely book it's full of really lovely brand new absolutely delicious recipes and it's super simple and super cheap and hopefully it will help people to you know, shave a little bit off their food budgets here and there. And you know, every everything in that department is a little bit helpful. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us on this week's episode of Tea with the Changemakers. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. For anyone interested in finding out more about Jack Monroe, then you can check them out on Instagram at Jack underscore Monroe. And Jack has 176,000 followers on Instagram. So do go and check them out. You can find out more about Jack on cookingonabootstrap.com. See you next time.